Welcome to the 59th episode of Dialgika, a podcast between two friends about the latest in politics, society, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. I'm Sweden Lee, and surprise, surprise, I'm not in this episode. For some of you listeners who don't know, I work adjacent to politics here in America, and it's been a whirlwind last few weeks with the midterm elections to say the least. I work for a digital agency that supports a lot of political campaigns and races here, specifically Democratic races, and as we speak, votes are still being recounted in Florida and Georgia, and so the midterm elections continue to roll in this weird state, which is just a long-winded way of saying that I'll still be out for the next few weeks. Luckily, Stephanie has been plugging away and talking with some incredible people, and we're excited to share with you her conversation with a rising figure in youth politics in Indonesia, Michael Victor Sianipar. Michael used to work for AHO and was a member of his staff during his time as governor of Jakarta, and Michael's currently a member of PSI, or the Indonesia Solidarity Party, one of the newest political parties in Indonesia with a huge youth following. This is actually going to be a two-part conversation, since Stephanie and Michael talked about a lot of good stuff and we don't want to throw any of it away. So in this first episode, Stephanie talks to Michael about his experience working with Aho from the early days of Aho's governorship to his prison sentence. They also talk about Michael's current role as a regional leader in Jakarta local politics through PSI, and Michael also talks about how he got into politics in the first place. Like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in there, lots to learn from and reflect on, and we're excited to dig right in. So, I'm gonna shut up now, and without further ado, here's to it. special guest today, Michael Victor Sianipar. And Michael, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Well, I'm Michael Victor Sianipar, and I'm uh, working in politics right now. I've been working in politics and government for more than six years, since 2012. I graduated from Yonsei University, South Korea, back in 2011, and then I came back to Indonesia in 2012. My first job was as a campaign assistant to Basuki Chaya Purnama in the Jakarta gubernatorial race. Mm-hmm. And then he got elected with Jokowi, and then I started working in the city hall as vice governor's aide, and then governor's aide. And right now I'm helping out four different governors in four different provinces, mm-hmm. setting up government governor's teams uh, for for mm-hmm. them. What was uh, what was your responsibilities in the governor's office right now, or back when I was in Jakarta? Back then, like oh, back, back then, yep. oh. yeah, back then uh, my first assignment was to carry his phones. <laughs> so, uh, yes, <laughs> I used to have. 13 different blackberries. 13. One because, three. Yes, because each blackberry could only, uh, could only have 2000 contacts. Wow. So every time we maxed out on the contacts, we had to buy a new one and buy a new one. So every day, uh, every time I would carry at least four. Wait, so that's 26,000 contacts that he had. Yes. Around. Because one of the most effective campaign strategy we had mm-hmm. is, was through blackberry broadcasts. Uh-huh. Right, so, that's so, so true. Yeah, any good, right. Pre-WhatsApp so back group. Then I, <laughs> yes, pre-WhatsApp group. So, yeah, um, and Ahok told me that, Mike, if you want to learn politics, you got to carry my phone because any complaint from the citizen, from the people, you can read it and see it and then respond to it. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because you don't get to pe- meet people that much in a campaign. But whenever a person has a problem, he or she would uh, try to find someone who can help. And right. that's the job of a politician. So that's why you got to make sure that your number is always available. What did you kind of learn about the people in that job? When uh, responding to text messages and uh, complaints, mm-hmm. I can see that people in Jakarta are... They've been waiting for uh, someone or, or, or a leader who can, can connect with them. Mm-hmm. Because in Indonesia and especially in Jakarta back then, it was uh, very difficult for common people to have access to people in power. Mm-hmm. But then when we gave out the phone number and when they knew that it's Ahok's direct phone number, they got excited. Mm-hmm. There are even some people who would give advice or just policy views and it became like an extended text messages, really hoping that the governor could uh, do something or just follow up on the recommendations that they give. Mm-hmm. But it gives them voice. That's, that's what I like about giving out phone numbers to people because they feel like they have direct access, they have direct communication, they have a voice. Right. And in a way, like I think most people's perception in Indonesia is that um, politics is all about who has access to that connection, right? Yes. That voice, like how we people influence policy and politics here is based on who you know. And oftentimes people feel somewhat out of touch with that. A lot of voters sometimes feel disenfranchised because, you know, there's this perception that politics is about connections and nepotism and stuff. So (laughs) part of that, part of Ahok's difference and what you were feeling was that this was something really exciting to people. Yes. And that's that's what we really try to uh, exemplify. Mm -hmm. Even this, this has already happened under Jokowi's governorship. We try to make sure that our doors are always open. Right. So every morning people would come to our office, just common people, not just uh, high officials, but they could come to our office. So when Ahok or Jokowi got off the car, uh, they would converse with the people. They bring complaints directly. Right. And then we also develop the uh, public complaint system, Jakarta Smart City, to, to, to uh, encourage more people communicating with us. Mm-hmm. And that is important, not just for the people out of the outside the government, but even for civil servants. Mm-hmm. Because I realized that a lot of civil servants, is, uh, the, the civil service is very bureaucratic. Right. So in the past, only the agency heads could communicate with the governor. So that's the head of um, whatever department they're in, right? Right, right. So I remember in some of the meetings, uh, there were some low-level officials who attended but they didn't say any, anything because they were afraid that it's, it's not their position to say a word in the meeting. Right. So uh, what I'll try to do is he encourage us, his staff, to reach out to the low-level officials and talk with them, see if they have ideas as well. Right. And some of these low officials actually also have a house number. And if they have something that they want to say, they can also uh, contact directly to Ahok. But they're still being very respectful, so they don't just circumvent their bosses and report directly to the governor but they know that there's that avenue yeah and and that that helps gives accountability so check and balance because agency has no also that uh, they can't just pass around because uh, their underlings their the law officials can actually report to ah, okay right. there's something bad or something corrupt that they do um how long did you work with him and what was your lasting impression of him and what did you learn the most from him so i used to work for him for more than five years mm-hmm. during the first campaign up until the end of the second campaign before he got in prison. Mm-hmm. 
But the thing that I learned the most from him is not definitely not his communication skills. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's a he's a guy who has a strong vision and determination. That's that's what I realized. If you want to govern well, you gotta have the the grit. Mm-hmm. I remember um, he always had this idea of constructing light rail transit in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. And then the first idea was to have property developers in Jakarta finance the construction. That didn't happen because of some regulatory issues. Mm-hmm. And then he wanted to to do it using the national budget, but also there was a problem about it. Mm-hmm. So he tried to do. He tried always tried to find alternatives mm-hmm. until after three years, it's, it was finally possible. Right. So when he first came into office, he had a lot of ideas of what Jakarta should be. And we would face hurdles along the way every single time. But to still have the vision, to still have the belief that you can accomplish it, if you just keep on pushing through, mm-hmm. when other people in the city, other people in the government just thought it was impossible. Right. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a good quality that I wish to emulate as well. Right. Um, last further question, like how is he doing now and how did you feel about the whole situation? So he's been keeping silent. Uh, a lot of people have been trying to meet with him in the prison to just visit. But from from what I know, he's been closing himself. Not He, he doesn't want to meet with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And if you want to meet him, you have to contact through the family. I'm not sure if uh, what he wants to do after he got out because he should be getting out in January. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have been asking. A lot of people have been speculating as well. But most likely he will not do much until the end of the campaign because mm-hmm. whatever yeah. he says will be influence the result. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the whole situation? Him being imprisoned or right now? Both. Like, um, you know, what was? How did you feel as someone who worked closely with him? So I do. Even until today, I feel like it's an injustice. Right. I disagree with the court's ruling. I think it's a blemish in our history. Uh huh. But. Just like with Jokowi, with a lot of people around Ahok, with myself, we just have to keep on going. We have to move on. And do you think this is kind of reflective of the politics um, in Indonesia to come, or was this an isolated incident? Well, the, well, the reason why Jokowi has Maruf Amin as the vice president candidate is exactly because of what happened in 2016. Right. If it weren't for that, we would have a different vice president. Right. And that's the fact. Um, so, Michael, besides your work with Ahok, you work with BASE. Yeah. Uh, what's your position there and how, how did you come about to be in this position? Um, I've been involved in Partai Solidaritas Indonesia, Indonesian Solidarity Party, yeah. since 2015. So, back when I was still working in the city hall. I started off just as a member and then I became the head of Central Jakarta branch and then moving up to the Jakarta provincial branch. So I'm currently the, the regional head of Jakarta province. Mm-hmm. And it's a new party. It's the newest party. We, we started off back in 2014 because right after Jokowi was inaugurated, we felt like it's not enough just to support good people like Jokowi and Ahok because we realized if we want to keep on supporting them we can't just support them from the outside just by becoming voluntary groups activists mm-hmm. but we got to have a voice we got to have a position in the in in the institutional uh, context in, in parliament as well mm-hmm. so we decided to start a political party right i mean one of the main thing is that everyone is fairly young 
um, for politics. What was the kind of vision with the youth? Um, why you right. know, focus it around youth and people who are just different than the typical political member in Golkar or other main political parties? We are a young party. For example, in Jakarta, my administration, well, not my administration, my team in Jakarta. Your um, administration. <laughs> yeah, well, th- that's a bad choice of word, but my team in Jakarta regional branch, right. all of us are under 30, under 30 years old. There are uh, seven of us, mm-hmm. uh, the core team. How old are you now, by the way? I'm 27. Okay. We're around the same age, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we are a young party, but um, actually... Quite uncomfortable with calling us a youth party. We're not a youth party. Mm-hmm. We're a, a party for everyone, for old people and young people alike. But we just feel like running the party needs to be professional. And it is better to have uh, more young people involved in running the party. But we do have candidates. Okay. Yeah, we do have candidates who are much older, 40 years old, 50 years old. But we realize that even as politicians, we're going to be old someday. So if, if, <laughs> if I say, oh, it's, it's, it's a young party, but does it mean that? 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I shouldn't be involved in the party anymore. Yeah. I think I should, but what we want to do is, as a professional party, is we want to support, uh, provide a su- the support system for the politicians. Yeah. In terms of the media, the campaign, the strategy, the idealism, but anyone can run using our party platform, mm-hmm. regardless of age. So we want to create a distinction between the officials, the elected officials from PSE, and the people running the party. Mm -hmm. In other parties, you would have somebody becoming a member of parliament but still has control of the party, somebody becoming Mm -hmm. the governor of a province but still control the party. That's something that we want to avoid. Why is that? Because we don't want to have a preponderance of power. I think power corrupts, and unless we have the ability to regenerate the party, to have new blood young people uh, to refresh what we do uh, and a party we can't be adaptive to the situations in Indonesia okay which are changes so quickly and is super right yeah exactly so we don't want to make the mistakes that other parties have a lot of parties are owned by a person owned by a family or just by a circle of elites that uh, perpetually just stay in power mm-hmm. for example like Golkar and Pekas, they don't they're they're not owned by a family or a person, but you always see the same person, right. the same people right. it's uh, a lot running of the party. Politics in a way that is uh, same old kind of situation. Yes, to put it quite diplomatically. Um, <laughs> That's what, that. That is also what what I tell my uh, my friends in the party. Um, I don't have to be the head of the regional branch if there's somebody better than me. He or she can just run for that position next time and can just beat me, and I'm okay with that. I just want to make sure that we are a meritocratic party. Right. Those who perform should have the opportunities. Right. Because I know you told me at some point that you actually ran for office, right? Yes, city council. City for city council, and you are you became intimately aware of how how much personal political ties oh. and money influences you know being in that kind of system where it's not like a meritocratic system necessarily. Yes. So I did run for office back in two thousand fourteen. For the general election, I, I ran for the city council of Jakarta mm-hmm. uh, from Greenra because Ahok back then was a member of the Greenra party. Mm-hmm. But I realized if you want to be a politician in Indonesia, you have to be very well connected or you just have to have a lot of money. Because mm-hmm. not to mention winning the election. 
Right. But just running to run. a, just to run, just to be endorsed by a political party so that you can run for office in the first place. You got to have good connections in the party or else the party would just cross you out. Uh-huh. Or uh, you can use what we call it, mahar, just paying for the slot, which doesn't guarantee that you're going to be elected. But just in order to run, you have to pay the party. Right. That happens a lot. So for young people like myself, it was difficult to enter politics. That's, that's why I, I realized a lot of young people don't like politics. They don't see there's an opportunity. But if we have a political party that gives them opportunities, I, I'm sure that a lot of more young people would want to enter politics. So let's say if one of our listeners would want to, wants to join PSE, how would they do that? How does And if they want to run for something, is that something people can do if they have the right qualifications? And what are the kind of qualifications you're looking for in people? Yeah, so if you want to join a party, you can just find out from the website, contact us, and also uh, through our social media as well. Um, we are very open to meeting up, and we have information sessions for you guys to uh, come and see and hear and ask questions. Yeah. We're, we're comfortable with all kinds of questions. Uh, you can ask about the history, idealism, our finances, anything. So we, we're going to be very transparent and open about it. And if you want to run for office, you got to compete. That's what we did for this uh, round of election. Uh, we already have a slate of candidates throughout Indonesia. But we, what we did was we had an open recruitment. So anyone can apply. You got to be, uh, you got to prepare an essay for it. Just like apply, applying for college, an essay, <laughs> your CV. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there's also the interview part and Jakarta's, uh, Selection process is a lot more difficult. I realize we had, we had, um, more than 300 people applying for just to run for office from PSE. Oh, wow. But we could only support a hundred candidates. Mm-hmm. That's a whole lot. That's yes. still a lot of candidates to support. Yes. But that's still one in three. That's not like, that's not a terrible, uh, getting to college generally is much lower chances than that. So. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So like one more thing that I think I know, and because I've known Michael for quite some time now, um, <laughs> is that one thing to know about Michael is that he's also not from a political family, a political background, which is why I think, yeah. um, you know, like I think a lot of other people of, who are generally our age and in politics or in political parties, a lot of them come from political families or are, mm. you know, sons of business people and then go through that way. Yeah. And so like, that's something I think important as a part of your story and why it's uh, different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you want to talk a little bit about your background? like? So my parents are just all right. I mean, my parents, my family is not a business family or a political family. We're just maybe lower middle class, I would say. Mm-hmm. I got a lot, of, a lot of scholarship. I was on scholarship back in high school. I got a full scholarship also in college. Mm-hmm. So I, I, would, I would tend to say that I come from relatively humble background but the reason why i'm interested in politics and why i'm doing this right now is because i felt like i had a lot of opportunities given to me mm-hmm. i remember back in high school I, I i i took public transport bus going to school uh which is in a different city uh-huh. and i live? just saw uh, well i lived in jakarta but the school was in tangrang so i had to yeah. take public bus me and michael went to the same high school same uh, high school is, yeah. same, which is kind of how we know each other but you were uh, a year above me, right? I think I'm two years above you. <laughs> two years. 
two years above you and you're the same age. That's because Michael was very smart and got a scholarship <laughs> on his intelligence. Um, yeah, but yeah, go, yeah, going back. So even when I was in high school, I realized I, I saw a lot of kids, uh, the beggars begging for money in the, in the bus and, and just looking at myself. And then you come to yeah. SPH, which is a really good so school. So for context, <laughs> and which is, I think Michael is trying to like skirt around and be correct about uh, the to the contrast of his going to school and public transport versus like um, our high school is one of like the most expensive private school with a lot of rich kids. And is yes. Michael is probably one of the only ones who went to school in the public transport. <laughs> so like seeing that contrast, I think, yeah, it, impacted yes, you. Yes, it was tough for me, honestly. I mean, this is getting a bit personal, but it was tough for me going to a elitist high school. But seeing what I saw in Jakarta and uh, just the contrast, but that, that gave me the motivation because I felt like I can do a lot of things in life. I can go to college abroad and have a lot of dreams and ambitions because I got the right education. I, I was given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And how I wish that more people have that. And I don't see people, a lot of people in Jakarta have that. So, so you wanted uh, to do something. I'm not saying that. that. Yeah, I wanted to do something. I'm not saying that this is the role of the government. I think private sector, I, I think uh, charity institutions, I think um, religious institutions as well have a role to play in this. Mm-hmm. But I think the government can definitely help with the right regulations and also just making sure that we are not a corrupt country. I know we've had a lot of personal discussions between you and I about like why youth need to go in politics. Yes. Um, and I'm generally like, I'm going to be on the outside and criticize things that Michael do. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, that's one way, which is like the activist <laughs> route and reporter route. And, um, but what's like the, you know, what would what be your pitch about like why people and youth especially should go to politics? All right, this is going to be a five-minute answer because people like to ask this question mm-hmm. and already have a set of answer. Right. So, so yeah, I've always been interested in politics ever since high school. I took history course and I like to read history books. And I realized that if you want to change a country, change society, it starts from the leadership. Mm-hmm. I have a, a, a this mindset in that in that sense because I feel like mm-hmm. if you want to abolish slavery, you had Abraham Lincoln doing that in America and then you have Hitler in Europe that started World War. So I felt like, yeah, politics is where you can make uh, the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. So I, I took uh, political science as my undergrad uh, major because I saw myself doing that in the future. But honestly, as a young person back then, back in college, I my original intention wasn't going to politics directly mm-hmm. because I, I thought that was foolish. Why did you think it was foolish? Yeah, because I I did believe if you want to enter politics, you already you need to have a lot of things settled. You need to have uh, uh you need to be financially established. You need to be well connected. You need to be strong so that you won't be tempted to be corrupt. Mm-hmm. You got to be effective, and you have you need to have the credentials, the education, and so on. Right. So my plan was to go to law school directly. 
I wanted to go to law school in the US. I did apply, got accepted at some schools. Mm-hmm. But and then after law school, I thought of becoming a lawyer first in the US, earning some money, financially established, starting a family, and then maybe when I'm 30 years old, 35 years old, I would come back to Indonesia and do something. Right. So so that was the plan. And I think it was a great plan. All calculated and just perfectly thought out. <laughs> but when I was back in Indonesia uh, in 2012, well, I was waiting for my law school application uh, results. Uh, one day I got a notification from my dream school. I got waitlisted at that school. And I was just devastated. I thought life was unfair because I felt like I had a good intention. The reason why I want to go to law school, study, uh, just build network is because I want to help Indonesia uh, along the way. Mm-hmm. But but why is why is life not working out? So I was stressful that day, and it just happened. I don't know. I don't know what came into my mind, but I I was just inspired to just leave home, just go outside, just walk outside, and I walked for an hour until I reached a slum in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. A slum in Jakarta that's just located by the river and by a railroad. So just a typical Indonesia, Jakarta slum. Mm-hmm. And I saw in the river, it was midday, so it was very hot, but I saw in the river a dozen, more than a, a, a dozen children swimming. And I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't know children swim in rivers in Jakarta, because that yeah. always happens, but yeah. coming back from abroad. Growing up in Jakarta. Yeah, it's, it's Jakarta. Yeah. But coming back from college from South Korea and then seeing that Jakarta hasn't changed. On the contrary, maybe Jakarta has only gotten more worse in terms of inequality and so on. I was just shocked. Right. And, and then, uh, I saw in one of the buildings, Shanty buildings, uh, there's a banner that says mini library. So I was curious, how could there be a, a library in such a place in, in, in slum? Mm-hmm. So I knocked on the door and then along came Mm-hmm. Uh, Pahaji, so uh, a guy came out, he was wearing a sarong, and then he invited me in, and I asked him, but why, do, why are the children swimming in the river? So it was a stupid question. Yeah. But, but I, but I didn't know what, what else to ask, so I, it was very awkward mm-hmm. just being mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And then, and then he said, well, those children are from the other side of the river, because children from this side of the river, I've been telling them not to swim. Mm-hmm. Oh, so how, how, how can you tell children not to swim and they listen to you? Yeah, I, I'm actually a religious teacher. Mm-hmm. So he's a pahaji. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's been teaching children how to read the Quran for 16 years. Wow. Yeah, and then he told me that two years ago, uh, some college students came and gave donated books. So so that's that's why they name it a, a library. So it's actually a mushola, a, a place where people pray. Mm-hmm. And then I told him, okay, I'm going to come back again tomorrow. I'm going to bring books. And that's what I did. I remember buying three dozens of Dunkin' Donuts because I knew there were going to be kids. Mm-hmm. And then I carried a box of books back to the slum. And I gave out the books, the donuts. And then Pahaji called all the children. There were 40 of them. And it's a very small building, so completely packed with children. Yeah. And, the, and Pahaji told, told the kids, all right, we have a guest. He, he's been good to us. He gives us books and donuts. Let's pray for him. Mm-hmm. And they all started praying uh, in Arabic mm-hmm. and just... For uh, context, I'm a Christian. I've been going to Christian schools from elementary up until college. So that was a new experience. Mm-hmm. But going back home after that experience, I was, uh, I felt, I felt like I was rebuked. I, I mean, I, I realized that <laughs> I've been very arrogant in my yeah. way of thinking. Yeah. In what and way? I thought to myself, sorry? Arrogant in what way? 
Yeah, because I thought to myself, look, Mike, you are angry, you are uh, stressed out because your plan of going to law school just doesn't work out the way you want it to be. Uh-huh. You don't get accepted to your dream school. Well, it's, I wasn't rejected either. I was waitlisted. With, there was still hope, but you you were angry. Uh, and the reason why you're angry is because you have a lot of plans and you say that you want all these to be accomplished so that you can help out people in the future. Mm-hmm. After you get a good degree, after you earn your million dollars, after <laughs> you become financially established, you have a family and then you would come back to Indonesia and do something for this country. Mm-hmm. But look at the kids swimming in the river. Mm-hmm. Do they have a chance of going to grad school at all? No. Do they have a chance to go to college? Maybe not. Maybe some of them would not even finish high school. Right. So, so I'm always just talking to myself. Look, Mike, you only want to help people when you already have what you want. You want to help people from the top. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's okay. I mean, you become rich first and then you help out people. But, mm-hmm. but that's when I realized, yes, in order to be a politician, it's important to get a good education political connected experience and, and so on but i asked myself this do i have the heart to be in politics mm-hmm. to help out to help out these people and back then in 2012 i realized i just didn't have the heart for for this kind of work mm-hmm. and it just so happened the week after that i met with ahok mm-hmm. i met with a friend who was working for ahok and then he invited me over he told me mike if you want to learn about politics just follow joko and ahok And I asked, them, I asked my friend, why? Why should I support them? Mm-hmm. And the friend told me, well, you don't have to be too critical, but if you want to know whether a politician uh, is someone worth supporting, you just follow them when they meet with people. You can tell from the look of their eyes whether they're being sincere or not. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised with that answer. I was intrigued. So that's what I did. And I followed Jokowi and Ahok. And that's when I knew that these people have the heart to be in government, to be in politics. Mm-hmm. So that changed me. That convinced me that, all right, mm-hmm. I don't have to wait until I'm 30 years old or 35 years old to do something for Indonesia or for the people around me. I can just do, do it now. And I was fortunate I was given the opportunity, which a lot of young people don't have. Yeah. So so what I, would, what, what I like to tell to friends uh, uh, and younger people who ask me about this is, well, if you have the opportunity... Just do it. You don't have to wait until you have everything because it's just never going to be enough. Thank you for tuning in to this first episode of a two-part conversation with Michael. Stay tuned for the second episode of the conversation coming out at the end of the month. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, delica.id. Music credits to John Dealey, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Broke for Free. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at dialogicapod.
Also, follow me on Twitter. It's Steph Tank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again and see you guys next time. Bye.